Well, hello. Um, good afternoon and welcome to, uh, to this lunch hour lecture. Um, I'm very pleased to introduce Professor Ewan Morgan, um, who's, who's from the Institute of the Americas, uh, who's going to give us his lecture, which is entitled Obama's America, the Significance of the 2012 Elections. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming and giving up your lunch hour. I hope I uh, uh, make it uh, uh, an interesting 45 minutes or so for you. Okay, to begin with images of Barack Obama's election victory in November 2012. Cartoon on the top is the uh, very tight race uh, developing between the Republican elephant uh, headed by uh, uh, Mitt Romney and uh, the uh, winner, the Democratic uh, donkey ridden by uh, Barack Obama. These are the symbols of the two parties and at the bottom, Obama at his victory celebration um, uh, with the vast crowds um, uh, that turned out to uh, congratulate him. More significantly, perhaps, the uh, uh, famous uh, electoral college map of the American states showing the uh, states won by Obama in blue and uh, the Republican Mitt Romney in red. In uh, a reversion of European tradition, uh, the red is the conservative color in the United States and the blue is the leftist color. And uh, that map shows that uh, uh, Barack Obama won a significant uh, electoral college majority. Uh, many people were expecting it to be very tight uh, but in winning the uh, uh, states of Virginia and uh, Florida, uh, Obama confounded many uh, poll predictions and emerged a relatively easy winner in the Electoral College in the end. Now, I'm going to talk today about the significance of the presidential vote initially and then talk about the significance of the outcome of the election. And to start with, uh, it's worth noting that uh, this is the fourth Democratic presidential election victory out of the last six. So there's a trend developing in favor of the Democrats. And if you consider that one of these elections, the 2000 election, uh, the disputed election that went to the Republican George Bush, many people felt that this actually should have gone to the Democrats. So there's a trend to the Democrats compared to the previous uh, six presidential elections from 1968 to uh, 1988, which uh, were won, five of these were won by the Republicans and only won by the Democrats. So we appear to be entering a new era so far as presidential elections are concerned with the Democrats having the upper hand. What was expected to be a very close race turned out to be, as I said, a comfortable win for Obama, but actually smaller in margin than his initial election in 2008. And uh, in terms of the Electoral College, which determines the actual election of the president, uh, Obama won in the Electoral College by uh, 332 votes to 206, compared to 365 to 173 when he beat John McCain in the 2008 presidential election. He won the popular vote 51 to 48%, but this compared with the popular vote victory of 53 to 47% when he was elected in 2008. So, 
Can we talk of a new democratic majority emerging? This is what a lot of people have been asking about the trend that's emerging in recent American politics. Uh, are, the president, uh, are the Democrats uh, who were the majority party in the mid-20th century uh, on the verge of regaining that status? And it's fair to say that uh, there was no majority party in American politics uh, in the late 20th and early 21st century. If we define a majority party as meaning the party that controls both the president and the Congress, uh, this happened rarely in uh, the late 20th and early 20th century. In only 10 years from 1969 has the same party controlled the presidency, the House of Representatives and the Senate. And what's interesting about Obama in 2008 and 2012 is the kind of electoral uh, vote in terms of the groups who supported him. And many commentators have argued that Obama has put together an uh, electoral uh, coalition in support of the Democrats uh, that reflects the changing 21st century America. An America that is diverse in terms of its ethnicity, moderate uh, in terms of its politics, and tolerant in terms of its sociocultural outlook rather than monochrome, conservative, and intolerant that we associate, rightly or wrongly, with the era of Republican dominance. Democrats, however, do not yet have a clear majority. It's important to remember that the Republicans still control the House of Representatives, but uh, if you count all the votes that were cast in all the 435 elections for the House of Representatives, the Democrats actually uh, won more of the total popular vote cast for the House uh, than the Republicans. The Democrats won 50.3% of all votes cast in every House election uh, compared to 49% for the Republicans. Why did the Republicans win? Because their vote is more efficiently distributed. Uh, it's better spread out across uh, the congressional districts and therefore that explains why they won the House of Representatives quite comfortably with a minority share of the vote. But it is a minority share of the vote. Uh, the majority share went to the Democrats, encouraging people to believe that they are truly a new majority party. Who are Obama's constituents in 2012? Which constituencies did he win? Well, the key voter blocks which gave Barack Obama his election, his re-election victory in 2012 were the following. Women, 55 to 44%. African-Americans, 71 to 27%. Asian-Americans, although they only constituted about 5% of voters, 74 to 25%. Gay-Americans, again, roughly 4 to 5% of the electorate, 75 to 25%. Latinos, and this is a really exciting one for the Democrats because the Latinos are the fastest growing minority in the country and will be a hugely significant group in years to come. Obama won the Latino vote 71 to 27%. He wins the youth vote 18 to 29 year olds, 60 to 37%. And he wins those with an annual income under $50,000 
60 to 38 percent. So these are the foundations of uh, Barack Obama's election victory in 2012. Now, what do Democrat voters want? Well, uh, broadly speaking, and this is very broadly speaking, Obama's electoral coalition was comprised of what some people have called aspirational groups, not the have-nots so much as those people who aren't necessarily affluent but have prospects of being so. So they have an aspiration for self-improvement, for betterment. They're not the traditional low-income coalition that supported the Democrats back in the mid-20th century. Uh, this is a different group both qualitatively and quantitatively. They want, these are groups who support a progressive stroke activist state on things like job creation, uh, provision of college credits uh, to help uh, people pay for tuition fees that are spiraling in the United States at the moment. Uh, investment in schools, education investment is a huge issue for the democratic groups. Uh, protection and uh, extension of the minimum wage is another factor. Uh, broadly speaking, this coalition supports Obama's health care reforms that he enacted uh, in 2010. It supports immigration reform uh, to allow those immigrants illegally in the country to be transferred to legal immigration status. Although it wasn't a big issue in the election, it was hardly mentioned at all, events after the election in uh, Youngstown, Connecticut, uh, put gun control very much on the agenda, and these voters, by and large, are the groups who tend to support gun control. And abortion, although that is a more divisive issue for the Democratic coalition, by and large, the coalition supports the right to abortion in the first trimester, the first three months of pregnancy. It's a very diverse coalition. It's a polyglot coalition. It doesn't really have any key uh, unity to it. And such coalitions are notoriously difficult to hold together. We can see that uh, in the particular case of Latinos uh, who are overwhelmingly Catholic, uh, Catholics, by and large, are hostile to abortion. Nevertheless, the Latino vote in 2012 went with Obama, despite his liberal stance on abortion, because the Latinos were more interested in other elements of Obama's agenda, uh, notably immigration reform and socioeconomic issues. Uh, and just to uh, uh, put, 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 to emphasize that point, uh, Latinos uh, constitute a significant proportion of those Americans who did not have health insurance until Barack Obama's 2010 reform put it within their reach. For many women to abortion, although it's a, uh, uh, a rights issue, is also an economic issue. And it's particularly noticeable that the women who were likely uh, to be of an age to have their children overwhelmingly supported Obama. And uh, it's particularly the case with unmarried women, among whom Obama's lead was a massive 38% 
whereas all women gave him a 12% lead. And many commentators have suggested that women uh, see the, the right of uh, safe and uh, medically uh, uh, good standard abortion as a necessary safeguard for their capacity to continue to work in these very difficult times. Uh, women uh, are very often the main support of their families uh, in these difficult times. Women also constitute something like uh, three quarters of the total workforce on uh, minimum wage in the United States. So the safeguard of protecting abortion rights is as much an economic issue to them as it is a personal liberty issue. And of course, aid to education issues, uh, improving America's rundown schools, uh, particularly in urban areas, binds together Latinos, African Americans, and the young, all of whom are aspirant to achieve uh, through improved education. What about the other side? Well, Mitt Romney's constituencies were these. Whites, 59 to 39%. No Democrat has won a majority of the white vote since 1944. It goes back that far, with the exception of one election, which is 1964. So whites have overwhelmingly supported uh, the Republicans, and this election was no different. Men. In contrast, the women went Republican, but by a smaller margin, 52 to 45%. Whereas the young supported Obama, the old went for Romney, 69 to 30%. Protestants, overwhelmingly Republican, and particularly uh, born-again evangelicals who are primarily located in the southern states. Protestants went 69 to 30% for Obama, evangelicals 79 to 20%, uh, and that explains the uh, lock that the Republicans had on most southern states in the 2012 election. Uh, and in income terms, it's whereas Obama wins the uh, uh, under 50K group, uh, the over 50K group goes by and large towards Romney. What do Republican voters want? Well, Romney's electoral coalition is more homogenous than Obama's. It's not a polyglot coalition in the way that Obama's is. And you could sum up its desire in one unified statement. It wanted less federal action, activism on most, but not all, issues. It wants limited government. It wants low taxes. It wants strong defense, whereas Obama has pledged to cut defense spending. It wants protection of gun ownership rights under the Constitution. It wants a tough stand on illegal immigrants, beginning with denying uh, access to uh, healthcare, uh, schooling, and other things for the children of illegal immigrants in the hope that uh, they will self-deport uh, back to Mexico and other parts of Latin America, in the words of Republican candidate Mitt Romney. And they stand for traditional socio-moral issues. Uh, they want the federal government to impose uh, its law that marriage 
can only happen between a man and a woman and to override the states which have a number of states which have allowed gay marriage and it also wants the federal government to increasingly limit the right of abortion and on that last issue of course uh, that is an indication of where the Republicans actually want a strong government to override uh, the, uh, uh, the rights that exist in certain states of choice with regard to abortion and a choice with regard to gay marriage. So whereas in most instances the Republicans are anti-statist, anti-government, in socio-moral uh, terms, they're quite willing to uh, use the power of government to uh, implement their agenda. And this is a cartoon, it's a caricature, uh, it doesn't tell the whole truth, but like all caricatures, it has some element of truth. This is election night, the very angry, old, white, rich man, uh, which summarizes Republicans in the eyes of many, uh, watching disbelievingly and angrily at a television set reporting Obama's victory with the smiling servants all around him who are part of Obama's electoral coalition. But before we run away that, uh, with the idea that uh, it's um, uh, a certainty now for the, Republic, for the Democrats uh, to win in 2016, a note of caution. Obama wins with 9 million fewer voters than in 2008. Obama's total vote is 9 million less than in 2008 because the turnout is only 50%. The total turnout in the presidential election is only 50% compared to 59%. Democratic prospects in 2016 hinge on a strong economic recovery, something that is by no means guaranteed. They could blame the current state of the economy on George Bush. They won't be able to do that in 2016. Only once has a party won three consecutive presidential elections since 1948. It's very difficult to win a series of presidential elections. It's only happened once since 1948 that the same party has won three elections on the trot. The Republicans in 1980, 1984, and 1988. And regardless of the size of their vote, the Republicans can claim to have won the other national election of 2012 by retaining control of the House of Representatives. And add to that the fact they also control the governorships of 30 of the 50 states of the Union. So the Republicans are by no means down and out. So this poses the question, what will the Republicans do? What lessons will they read into the outcome of the 2012 elections? They have two options. One is to become more moderate, to widen their voter appeal beyond their apparent constituency of angry old white men. Or, they could reaffirm their conservatism in the belief not only that it is best for America, but this is also the best for the party's near-term future. Everybody uh, is expecting the Republicans to undergo some kind of uh, uh, change of uh, heart and rediscover moderation. Uh, I don't think that is going to happen. There's no sign of it happening yet. 
and it's unlikely to happen. I think the party is going to continue to take the stands it has done for the last four years in Obama, in confronting Obama, and continuing to do so in Obama's second term. Why? The party's base is firmly conservative. Uh, the party uh, would uh, reduce its appeal to its core voters if it moved to the center. Its hold on the House is secure. That it would require some catastrophic uh, development to prevent the Republicans retaining control of the House of Representatives in the midterm elections of 2014. And the seats, the Senate seats, the one-third of the Senate seats that are coming up for election in 2016, most of them are held by Democrats with relatively small majorities, and the Republicans believe that they have the opportunity to get control of the Senate in 2014. So they don't believe they have any reason to change. So the election has restored the status quo that existed in Washington, D.C., before the 2012 vote. The House Republicans, they control the House of Representatives, can claim their own national mandate for reduced government and traditional social values. And in case they have any thoughts of wavering, there are extra party groups, groups outside the party, uh, that have a lot of clout and money uh, that uh, will keep them uh, to the uh, path of uh, uh, true belief. These include the Tea Party, the Americans for Tax Reform, led by a very powerful lobbyist called Grover Cleveland, very well-funded organization, and latterly, the Christian Right. At the same time, the Democrats will not abandon their core issues, protection of entitlements like Social Security pensions, Medicare and Medicaid, Medicare's uh, healthcare for senior citizens, Medicaid is healthcare for impoverished citizens. Uh, they will want tax increases on the rich, and they'll want progressive initiatives on immigration, abortion, and beginning yesterday, gun control. But the politics of Obama's second term is going to be dominated by budget issues, or everything else will be subordinate to the budget issues. And we've already had, everybody in this room has probably heard of something called the fiscal cliff, um, whereby uh, uh, tax cuts uh, that uh, um, were scheduled to expire and spending cuts which were scheduled to be implemented were going to come into being on the 1st of January 2013, and the effect of these tax increases and spending cuts uh, would have been ultimately to plunge the American economy back into recession. And that fiscal cliff was narrowly averted, but these cartoons show the sense of desperation. The cliff was only averted literally with a last-minute deal uh, at the uh, uh, tail end uh, of the last day of 2012. Those cartoon images uh, indicate the gravity of the situation, but the political reality of this is this. The United States has operated trillion-dollar deficits for the last four years. Its deficit is sky-high compared to historic averages. To address these deficits, it has to raise taxes and it has to cut spending. 
only problem is timing. When do you do it? If you move too soon on these issues, you send the economy back into recession, make it impossible to balance, uh, to, to achieve your fiscal goals anyway, because uh, a, a, an economy in recession doesn't deliver you enough tax revenues. Yes, the Democrats and the Republicans agreed last minute temporary fix, a patch to avoid uh, this outcome but it was something which will soon unravel. It didn't fix the long-term structural problems of the debt, of the public debt, and the annual deficit. And sure, then if we can predict anything, there will be new fiscal cliffs, whether we call them fiscal cliffs or not, uh, coming in the very near future, and the next one, the next date, will be March the 1st, when the United States will have to uh, negotiate an uh, extension, a, a raising of its legal debt limit. Uh, and in 2011, there was a huge battle about this. Almost certainly, there will be an equally huge battle about raising the debt limitation, and that's a show coming to us in late February, early March 2000, uh, 2013. And there'll be plenty of others in time to come uh, over a spending sequester uh, that had been delayed, that was uh, 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 in the uh, fiscal cliff deal. They, they simply didn't fix it. They agreed to fix it at some later date. Uh, they've also got to agree a budget for uh, 2014 fiscal year. So lots of opportunities for confrontation. And as this cartoon shows, uh, we've avoided the fiscal cliff. Now what? Uh, what are we going to call it? We can't even agree on a metaphor. Fiscal fission, tsunami, earthquake, tornado. Whatever they call it, it's going to be bad. What's going on? What's going on uh, here? Uh, uh, it's quite clear that American politicians, Republican and Democrat, cannot strike a grand bargain to solve their fiscal problems. So they kick the problem down the road. They kick the can down the road, to use an American phrase. The answer is simple. Democrats have got to slay their so sacred cow. They've got to reduce social entitlements. Uh, and the Republicans have got to slay their social cow, their sacred cow. They've got to uh, allow increase of taxes. But they can't agree that grand bargain. Uh, and so they kick the can down the road, uh, having temporary solutions that do nothing to address the long-term problem. Why? Partisan polarization partly explains the incapacity of this. We're living in a period of intense polarization where the most uh, cons uh, conservative Democrat is more liberal than the most liberal Republican in Congress. That's a new development. These parties are far apart. There's no middle ground. They don't intersect with each other. They're like two warring camps. And the, the right-wing poll of the Democratic Party is more left-wing than the left-wing poll of the Republican Party. But it's more than that. It also reflects a zero-sum economy. America can no longer have its cake and eat it. In the past, economic growth allowed the United States to have high spending and low taxes because economic growth delivered the revenues to pay for programs without having to have a high level of taxation. That's no longer possible. It's decision time. It's zero-sum time. 
You can't have both of them now. You've got to decide where your priorities are. And this is happening at the very moment that the population is aging, that the baby boom bulge, uh, those people who were born between 1945 and 1965 after the Second World War, people like me that happen to live in America are now coming to retirement age and putting more and more pressure on the pension and healthcare entitlement system. So this is a real problem for the United States. There are no, there is a, a, a plain answer but it's not an easy answer. It, the answer to the solution involves pain. And Americans, I have to say, are not very good at pain. The result is a series of short-term fiscal fixes that do not address the underlying problems of escalating public debt. Yes, you can fix it for a couple of months, a year if you're lucky, but ultimately you do nothing to resolve the underlying structural problem uh, that creates this massive public debt in the first place. You're continually fighting over the budget and that spills over into political interactions on other issues that have very little to do with the budget. When you're fighting on the budget, it therefore becomes more likely that you're gonna fight on other issues uh, like uh, immigration reform and as current circumstances show, uh, gun control. Delay in addressing fiscal problems means that they will continue to grow and they will become more difficult to fix in the future. That is the reality. The, the, the sooner you do it, the lesser the pain, and the pain's gonna be bad enough in the short term. But more delay there is, the worse the problem will be, and if there is an ultimate solution, it will be an extremely painful one. And people talk about the fiscal cliff. In my research, I like to talk about the debt Everest. Okay, this is, the, this is a chart that all American politicians should be aware of. This is the public debt that the United States has operated from 1900 uh, through to today and then the projection to the mid-20th century. You'll see that uh, the public debt is relatively low in the early 20th century, peaking in World War I going down afterwards, then going up again in the Great Depression when a whole series of uh, annual deficit, budget deficits were run. Then comes the peak in the 20th century, World War II, where America borrows to pay for the, uh, its involvement in the Second World War, and by the end of that conflict, debt is equal to 108% of GDP. That is very high, 108% of GDP, but post-war prosperity means that you can begin to pay the debt off, and slowly but surely, uh, you begin to go it all the way down to the 80s. It comes up again in the 80s, partly because of Ronald Reagan's tax cuts and defense expansion, but not too big, and it begins to come down again. Even in the war on terrorism, the debt-GDP limit is uh, under control, the debt-GDP ratio is under control, but look at it now. Uh, 2010 to 2020 reflects the effects of the Great Recession, but from there on in, the recession hopefully will be ended but the escalation of the public debt continues because of the uh, demand for entitlements, 
because of the inadequacies of revenue through low taxes and uh, a, um, the general effect. This is all to do with compound interest of, of uh, cumulative annual deficits ultimately producing a situation of fiscal unsustainability. It'll never get to 344%. Somewhere in the 2030s, America's foreign creditors will say, we're not paying you out, paying you any more. We're not, we're not loaning any more money to you. The Chinese will run away. And once the Chinese run away, the Japanese will follow. And all the other foreign creditors will see the United States as an unacceptable uh, risk to lend to. So the United States has got to get its act together before it becomes a fiscal equivalent of today's Greece and, and like Greece, it hasn't got the European Union to help it. It relies on foreign creditors to a great extent, and these guys will just run a mile uh, unless it shows the capacity to address its problems. 2012 elections, let's bring it back to 2012. 2012 elections, although they re-elected Barack Obama, and uh, significantly so, Ultimately, in terms of public policy, we have to question what their real meaning was. They didn't, the 2012 vote did nothing to break the deadlock in Washington, D.C. The Republicans have not yet suffered the kind of huge uh, electoral defeat that would make them reconsider their political strategy and ideological values. Similarly, the victorious Democrats have no... Uh, I have no question that they are vindicated in defending their priorities. The founders of the American system, constitutional system created a system of government that inhibited majority rule. The founders created a system of divided government which made it difficult to achieve majority party rule. But they expected the different elements within government to be able to work together. And that isn't happening now and the American system of government appears to be very ill-suited to deal with its current problems. And what America faces, if the Soviet Union in the Cold War was the old red peril, America today faces a new red peril, and the debt problem is the litmus test of American government's present-day capacity to devise rational, bipartisan policies that can safeguard America's future prosperity and power. If it cannot do so, America's future as a great power is in doubt. On that note, I will stop. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ewan. A very interesting set of uh, data and figures. And now I open it up uh, to questions, but before the first question comes along, let me just note that uh, when invited to speak, could you just hang on for the microphone to arrive uh, to enable you to be heard by people all over the world listening to this. Okay, first question. First question here at the front here, uh, the middle. Thank you for a good talk. Um, could you give us some indication why it is that the majority goes one way and the Congress goes the other? Is, is this another of these anomalous boundary problems? 
What, what, what confronts an American voter when he goes into the voting booth? Are there masses of handles that he pulls for Republican and Democrat? In which case, is it just that it's too damn complicated to operate as a, as a system that reflects what the voters really wish? Well, it's certainly true if you look at a, 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 an American ballot, it's vastly longer and more complicated than a British ballot. But you can cut through all of that by simply pulling a lever which says Democrat or Republican. You can vote the ticket simply by pulling a lever. So when people who actually split their vote are doing so they're actually entering a complex process because they want to split their vote. Uh, um, uh, you asked about the congressional elections. Uh, it's uh, very often that uh, uh, the local member of the House of Representatives or the uh, senator for a particular state has a personal vote which overrides partisan concerns. Uh, one of the reasons why the Republicans have such a lock on the House of Representatives is that they won the 2010 midterm elections. The Democratic performance in 2010 was a disaster for the party. It wasn't simply that they lost control of the House of Representatives. They lost control of a goodly number of states. And this occurred just at the time when the decennial census was being carried out. And the decennial census allows you the opportunity to uh, change constituency boundaries. And if in those states which had Republican governors, guess what? They changed the boundaries to suit the party to best effect. And these boundaries will be in effect until 2020. The next question was just by you there. As perhaps one of the only people in the room who actually voted for Obama and who votes regularly, uh, one of the few people, <laughs> um, we've seen what the election paper looks like. It's not that complicated. Or you pull a lever. To answer a little bit of the last person, Americans vote absolutely down the political line. They would vote for Mickey Mouse running on the Republican ticket. But I'd like to go back to something you said about who voted for Romney. It beats me why elderly white men do so. They're the ones who rely more and more on entitlements like Medicare, Social Security. They're the very people who say that socialism is communism. And I've pointed out that Social Security is a type of socialism. And they look horrified and say, what do you mean? I say, well, the clue's in the word, social. So I wonder how you can sort of explain this um, neocon that's been there for 40 years or so, and people still keep voting for it against their own interests. Well. Uh, of course, the uh, historians for political scientists in me would say, that's your view, isn't it? But uh, from a person voting Republican, they might have perfectly rational reasons to do so. Uh, not that I would vote Republican if I had the opportunity, but uh, you have to recognize uh, uh, that people have uh, uh, legitimate motives. What I would say in answer to your question, it's not simply the fact that these people uh, of a certain age are voting for a, uh, uh, a, for a party that does not wish to uphold the entitlements 
that they presently benefit from. I think it has much to do as anything else with, uh, with a sense that America is changing. You know, uh, the America of the 20th century is very different to the America these people grew up in in the post-war period. And as we all know, we like to uh, look back on the past and uh, think of it as a country uh, that w was, was all of the best. And now uh, a lot of people who are aged over 65 see an America which is becoming more polyglot in its racial and ethnic makeup, uh, where women uh, have a totally different role, uh, where uh, gay rights are beginning to question the sanctity of marriage. You could roll on for that. Sociocultural conservatism is very important. You cannot see these groups. These, the voters in these groups belong to different groups. If you're 65 and over and you're a fund an evangelical Christian, do you vote more as an evangelical Christian or as a pensioner? Who knows? We, we don't have that kind of level of data yet. Uh, what is interesting is that uh, uh, the future would appear to belong to the Democrats. White America is becoming smaller in terms of its proportion of the population, but uh, the, the two largest states in the American Union, California and Texas, are what Americans call uh, minority-majority states. In other words, whites make up a, a minority of the population of California, which is a solid blue state, Texas, which currently is solidly red, but that it, it grows more uh, Latino, uh, then uh, we can expect the Democrats to make inroads even into this rock-ribbed Republican state. So, you know, the future is with the Republican, is with the Democratic Party, but the short term, it'll take a while before all these factors come into force. And for the moment, the Republicans are thinking down the road to the 2014 and 2016 election. But it is not a strategy that allows for uh, long term electoral viability, in my opinion. We have a waiting list of about three questions now, but I'm getting instructions that being. Four minutes to, uh, to two, I have to, I have to close it as we're overrunning by a minute already. So my apologies to those that didn't manage to ask your questions. So it makes me to thank uh, you and Morgan very much indeed for a very interesting lecture. Thank you very much.